what if the crucifixion is not salvific? There is nothing redemptive in suffering. Jesus' death neither pays a ransom nor is a substitution for us. These are the words recently spoken by a supposedly Christian theologian uh, leading up to Good Friday and Easter. He lamented the fact that Christians suffer and that they venerate Jesus' suffering on our behalf. Uh, Of course, Frederick Nietzsche said something quite similar over a century ago. Uh, The German philosopher lambasted Christianity for its valorization of meekness and suffering. You know, wouldn't a true God show up in power? Uh, Shouldn't God's people be marked and known by their amazing successes? Uh, Christianity, Nietzsche concluded, was a weak religion for weak people. You know, the truth is that for 2,000 years now, the cross of Christ has been maligned and misunderstood by this world. Uh, Even the church itself has forgotten its cruciform calling at times. How should you and I, how should we think about suffering today in the Christian life? Is it a detour from the life of prosperity and ease and success? that God desires for you and I to have? Uh, Is it an unfortunate but inevitable part of a cold, distant universe? Is suffering an obstacle to the fulfillment of global gospel growth or the vehicle to its completion? These are some of the questions that we'll be considering this morning as we continue our series in the book of Colossians. So I'd encourage you to turn there now if you haven't already. We'll be in chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. The book of Colossians was written around 60 AD while the Apostle Paul was in a Roman jail. He had been visited by Epaphras, a local from Colossae, who had traveled from modern-day Turkey all the way to Rome to give an update on the church to Paul. So you notice in verses 1 to 8, Paul has been encouraged by the faith and the hope and love of the congregation. Uh, Yet on the other hand, false teaching had begun to infiltrate the church. Uh, That false teaching insisted that there was a knowledge outside of the knowledge of Christ, which needed to supplement Christ. Uh, Christ was not sufficient. You also needed to, to pay homage and attention to these other supernatural beings and forces. Uh, So in verses 9 to 14, Paul expressed his prayer that the Colossians would be filled with true spirit-given wisdom. And then in verses 15 to 20, uh, to demonstrate the glory and sufficiency of Christ, Paul reflected on his person and work. The last time we were in Colossians, in verses 21 to 23, uh, we saw Paul charge these Christians who were previously enemies, but presently reconciled to futurely persevere in the faith. And so we arrive at our passage this morning. Uh, We're going to walk through verses 24 to 29. We won't have any sub points. It's one long run-on sentence in the Greek, so it's kind of hard to to dice it up. Uh, But the main idea of our passage is simply this. God empowers gospel workers 
to suffer for the church as they proclaim Christ. God empowers gospel workers to suffer for the church as they proclaim Christ. So look with me at Colossians 1, beginning in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Amen. Well, our our passage begins dramatically, doesn't it? Uh, Verse 24, the ESV reads, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of the bo- his body that is the church. Colossians 1.24 is a bit notorious amongst scholars. Uh, so this week in my reading, you know, one of the scholars described it as the hardest verse in all of Paul's letters. Okay, so Paul wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. So you're looking at, you know, hypothetically, one of the hardest two verses in the New Testament. What is going on here? Uh, I'll confess that I spent probably over half my sermon prep time this week devoted to untangling just this one verse. I'll start out by saying that I I am not entirely sure what Paul means. Uh, So I just kind of want to be honest with you. This this verse is hard, and uh, when I say, guys, this is really what Psalm 24 means, Jesus is the Lord of glory who enters into the gates of heaven. I want you to believe me and be like, yeah, that's in the text, and Scott sees it, and it's there. And then when I'm like, ah, Colossians 1.24 is really hard, I also want you to, to believe me. Um, so I'm, I'm not entirely sure what Paul means. I'll, I'll give an explanation that I, I think is right, but you, you be the judge. But I am very confident that I know what, what Paul does not mean. So when Paul is referring to what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, He is not in any way stating that there is something deficient in the atoning, saving, reconciling value of Christ's blood, his cross work. So Paul is not saying that only half of your sins have been paid for. Hallelujah. Uh, Paul is not saying Only half or part of the wrath of God has been satisfied. We are partially adopted into God's family. Or that heaven and hell, well, it all still hangs in the balance. Christ's sufferings are somehow insufficient to bring us to God. That's not what Paul is saying. We know that because the rest of the New Testament uh, says that Christ has accomplished salvation. So, for example, Hebrews 9 
He states that Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. My friends, if you are in Christ, your sins have been put away. They're just gone, forgiven by the sacrifice of himself. And yet, we actually don't even have to leave Colossians to understand this. We don't even have to leave Colossians 1. Just just look back a few verses. Chapter 1, verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Uh, Brothers and sisters, praise the Lord. If you are trusting in Christ, you are now totally reconciled to God by the death of Christ. And so when Paul is referring to what lacks in Christ's afflictions, he's not saying there's anything else that needs to be accomplished for our salvation. He's not saying that that somehow his own sufferings are adding to the atoning value of what Christ accomplished. What what then is he saying? Well, I take Paul to be saying, I'm going to give you kind of my my, my summary, and then I'll try to give you the evidence, okay? I take Paul to be saying that he is in his body making present. That's kind of the key phrase. He's making present the sufferings of Christ to the Gentile Christians as he brings the gospel to them. And in this, he is following Christ's example and fulfilling the ministry that Christ gave him, and therefore he can rejoice. Okay, so just put another way. Paul is rejoicing because his sufferings not only accompany, but actively advance the gospel to the Gentiles as he makes them present. So just consider that first clause of verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings. Don't let the familiarity of this verse or the fact that it's in the Bible dull the craziness of what Paul is saying. I mean, Paul is saying that he is happy about his sufferings. He is joyful and thankful for the persecutions and trials that he goes through. Now, I don't think Paul is a masochist. He's not just happy about pain for pain's sake but rather the point is what the pain is effecting, their result, right? That's why Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Apparently, there's some benefit or a blessing accruing to the Colossians as a result of his suffering. And we we should just, again, note that Paul does, he doesn't just say like, yeah, getting stoned, uh, getting left to, to die, getting pressed, Uh, being shipwrecked out to sea, being jailed. He doesn't just say like, oh, that's a walk in the park. Like that's actually suffering. Just to be clear, Paul does not say that in the Christian life, the trials that we face aren't really trials. These sufferings aren't, aren't really suffering. No, what does he say in 2 Corinthians? He says, right, I'm, I'm sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Okay, so there's this dual reality. I rejoice, but I'm really suffering. Okay, but again, there's this benefit accruing to the Colossians that's leading Paul to rejoice in these sufferings. And it's that next phrase that explains how his sufferings can somehow be of benefit to others. 
And so what does it mean for Paul to say, in my body, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. I think we should notice that that, that first clause, um, Paul's talking about how his sufferings benefit the Colossians in particular. But then here in the second clause, it's what is lacking Christ's afflictions. I'm doing this for the sake of his body that is the church. The, the scope is expanded from just the Colossians to the entire body of Christ. And so two other times in the New Testament, we get that phrase to fill up what is lacking. Uh, and so we should pay special attention to these other texts because they might shine light uh, on what our text, Colossians 1.24, means. So you can just write these down. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 16.17, 1 Corinthians 16, 17, Paul wrote, I rejoice at the end of the letter. He said, I rejoiced at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit. Uh, literally, they have filled up your lack. So apparently the lack was the lack of being present. And then when these guys came, when they showed up, well, that lack was filled. It, it was made complete. And, and then second, in Philippians 2.30, Paul writes, So therefore receive Epaphroditus in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete or fill up what was lacking in your service to me. Okay, so, so earlier in Philippians, Paul had commended them for their love and partnership and fellowship in the gospel. The problem, however, was that that was the Philippian sentiment, which was thousands and thousands of miles away from Paul. That changed, however, when Epaphroditus came to Paul with a financial gift from the Philippians. He completed what was previously lacking uh, he, when he showed up, when he became present, uh, their love, their affection, their service for Paul had been mere sentiment previously, but now it became real and tangible and present. So I think the upshot of these two texts, the understanding that we should gain, is that in both cases, there is a ministry of presence that was originally not being fulfilled. Uh, it was lacking. But then Stephanus and Fortunus and Achaicus came from Corinth. And Epaphroditus came from the Philippians, and they filled up what was lacking. They literally became present to Paul. So that, that's, that's my understanding of what Paul is saying in Colossians 1.24. You, you could paraphrase 1.24 as saying, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am making present the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. I think this works. I'm not the only one who says this, by the way. There, there are commentators who say this. Uh, I think this works because Paul, just a few verses later, will express just how much he wants his flesh to be seen and known by the Colossians. That is, he wants how much he wants to be present with them. So just look at verse 29, the last verse in our chapter. Paul is again describing his ministry when he says, for this I toil, 
struggling with all his energy and that he powerfully works within me. Okay, so Paul's ministry of one of toil and struggle. And then look at how chapter 2 begins in verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle, same word, I have for you, and for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged. You know, his desire, what Paul wants, is for them to know how great his struggle and afflictions are. Uh, referring to verse 29, which is in parallel to verse 24. So that you will be encouraged. And yet the problem remains that you've not seen me face to face. Paul has not been present for the Colossians. You remember, he didn't found this community. It was Epaphras who had preached the gospel to the Colossians and founded that community. So Paul has never been there. And I think this is confirmed finally by chapter 2, verse 5, where Paul concedes, For though I am absent, and then here it is, literally, in the flesh. That same word from verse 24. Though my afflicted flesh is absent, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing in your good order. Paul wants these Colossian Christians to know his toil and afflictions, but the problem is that he hasn't seen them face to face. For the church at large, he has been filling up what was lacking. Uh, Paul has brought near and made present the sufferings of Christ. But for the Colossians, who he had never seen, well, his sufferings for the gospel were still unknown. I think that's what Paul means when he's filling up what is lacking. He's making present to the Colossians in particular. That's what he wants. Uh, but so far to the broader church, he's making present the afflictions of Christ. What are the afflictions of Christ? Christ's afflictions? Well, in short, it's the afflictions that Paul and all of God's people bear because of Christ. They're the afflictions that Christ gives to us. Just as Christ's physical, literal flesh and body suffered on that Good Friday, well, now Christ's body suffers as well. The body that is the church. Just as Christ's body endured suffering and persecution and affliction on Good Friday, so Christ's body today, in 2023, and in 60 AD, in Paul's day, likewise endures affliction and persecution. Uh, so the rest of the New Testament, again, bears this out, that you and I share fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. You remember in Acts 9 when Paul is persecuting uh, the church, Jesus interrupts him on the Damascus road, and what does Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Okay, so apparently when the body suffers, the head suffers. There's a sense in which Christ is being persecuted when his body's being persecuted. Well, the reverse is also true. It's just as Christ endures our afflictions, we endure his. So 2 Corinthians 1.5 states, For as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. In Philippians 2.10, Paul desires that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. And in 1 Peter 4.13, we read, But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings 
you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Friends, to be a Christian is to be united to Christ so that whatever is true of him becomes true of you, right? So he's a, he is part of God's family, so praise God, we get to be part of God's family. He is totally righteous, so we get accounted righteous. He was persecuted and afflicted. Well, we too endure that suffering. If we would know his resurrection life, we must know the sufferings of death. That's why the New Testament is so confident that all who desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Because he was persecuted. You know, it might be the social disdain and ostracization of 1 Peter. It might be the the jailing that Hebrews mentions. Or it might be the martyrdom from Revelation. Just as good works are a necessary outflow and evidence of your faith, so too there's a sense in which if we would participate in Christ's resurrection from the dead, we too must also share in his sufferings. And so for Paul, when he suffers persecution and an affliction, an affliction as an apostle, he is sharing Christ's afflictions. But then we still need to answer the question, well, how does this benefit the church? Paul, Paul's rejoicing over these afflictions because it's doing something for the Colossians and the church at large. How, how is this possible? I think the answer, to give one reason, which I think Paul has in mind, is that the medium is the message. Uh, if you were a communications major in college, you may have heard that before. Uh, the medium is the message. You know, God have, could have had Jesus live this perfect life, substitutionary death, glorious resurrection from the dead, and passed out a bunch of DVDs, or written it in the sky, or given a lot of flannel graphs around to proclaim the message of the gospel. He could have used podcasts, but instead, to disseminate his message, God chose people. He could have chosen angels, but he chose suffering people. Because the gospel is an upside-down message. The last will be first. The first will be last. And so, therefore, I think we shouldn't be surprised that God also uses upside-down methods. A cross for a king. Suffering messengers to proclaim a glorious gospel. If you head to the Sloan School at MIT, nobody's choosing suffering as the method to market their message. And yet the gospel's an unusual message, isn't it? Of how sinners can be reconciled to God. That the, the cross, the criminal on the middle cross, he is the eternal God. That we gain our lives by losing it. It would make no sense to have these really prosperous messengers proclaiming the good news of a suffering Savior. And so through suffering, God was making Paul into a fitting vessel to carry the message of the cross. That's why in Paul's apostolic task, and for you and me, but for Paul in particular, advancing 
advancing the gospel and suffering for the gospel, are, you can almost talk about them as the same thing for the Apostle Paul. In Acts 9, that, that Damascus Road experience, the Lord then to, told Ananias that, hey, this guy Saul used to be persecuting you. Guess what? He's a Christian now. You know, go talk to him. Listen to what the Lord Jesus says to Ananias. He says, go, for Saul's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul does two things for the sake of Jesus' name. He proclaims Jesus' name, and he suffers for Jesus' name. They're like flip sides of the same coin for Paul. Suffering was the vehicle and validation of Paul's preaching, the preaching of the cross. And again, I think the reason why it's true of Paul and you and me is that it was true for Christ himself. Again, Colossians 1.22. Notice what, what happens here. Christ has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless. Later in verse 28, Paul will say how he uh, desires to present people using that same word. I think the point that, we're trying, that, that Paul's trying to get at is just as Christ suffered in his flesh for the sake of the church so that they might be presented holy and blameless before him, so Paul suffers in his flesh for the sake of the church that they might be presented holy and blameless on the last day. Brothers and sisters, you can be sure that God is using your suffering to accomplish that same purpose. God is making you a messenger fit for the gospel. He uses persecution, and he also uses cancer, and job loss, and marital strife, and afflictions of every kind. It's not just persecution, but God will see fit to use the trials in your life, the afflictions that you undergo, to make the message of resurrection all the sweeter. Because it is as we die daily and take up our crosses that the message of the cross, the message of the cross and Christ's resurrection, what becomes that much realer and sweeter and more meaningful. And so it's Paul's ministry to the broader church and even to the Gentiles, which he then highlights in verses 25. Through 28. Uh, so, so just begin to look there at verses 25 to 28. Uh, we've already seen the global reach of the gospel in Colossians. So verse 6 mentioned how in the whole world the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. And in verse 23, right before our passage, Paul stated the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Okay, so in these verses we're going to see how Paul became specifically a minister uh, not just to the church, yes, but to the Gentiles, to the nations. So look at verse 25. Referring to the church, Paul says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Uh, notice here that Paul's status as minister or servant of the church, it's not self-assigned. It's not self-arrogated. No, God has appointed him to you, to it. Uh, so Mark and Dave, God has called you to serve this church. Praise the Lord. 
uh, and it's not for your own sake. Notice that Paul says this stewardship was given to me for you. And brothers and sisters, it's like that for all of us. Uh, Any gifts that we have, any abilities or talents or opportunities that God has given you, your relationships and your skills and your money, your family, it's not for you. It's partly for you. But it's, it's very much partly for your neighbor, for others, to bless and serve them. Notice the end of verse 25. Um, the King James Bible translates the end of verse 25 literally, which is to fulfill the word of God. I think that's a, a better translation. The point is that Paul's appointment to the apostolic task was in fulfillment of God's prophetic word. Uh, what word from the Old Testament might Paul have been referring to? Well, it may have been places like Isaiah 49, verse 6, which states, I will make you as a light for the nations. That word nations is the same as Gentiles. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Paul explicitly cites this verse in Acts 13 to describe his own ministry. And so, so Paul sees himself as fulfilling the word of God, fulfilling the prophetic word of the gospel going out to the nations. But that, that truth that the gospel was going to go out to the four corners of the globe, well, it was known in Paul's day, a lot more clearly than it was in Isaiah's. That's what verses 26 and 27 show us. So verse 26 reads, uh, refers to the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. When Paul refers to mystery, we we heard it earlier in our Ephesians 3 passage. Uh, He's referring to something that was once concealed, but has now been revealed. That's why Paul can refer to it being hidden for ages and generations. Again, I think Paul might have in mind places like Psalm 67, which Jake read for us earlier, which said, let the nations be glad. That word nations is the word Gentiles. So the fact that the gospel was going to go out to the four corners of the globe, it's there in your Old Testament, like you can find it in places like Psalm 67 and Isaiah 49, and a bunch of other places. But now this mystery has been unveiled. Now that Jesus has come, the great moment has arrived, so that the saints, like the saints in Colossae, well now people know. Because, verse 27, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, so it's kind of a lot going on in that sentence. Uh, But what Paul is saying is that God, in his sovereign grace, desired and chose to make known his amazing, glorious, or his amazing, rich glories in this mystery, which is in the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The nations, those previous enemies of Israel. Well, now God is revealing just how how glorious, like the, the riches of this glory. Just how incredibly glorious this mystery is. Because this mystery is doing something that was not happening before Jesus came. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What's so shocking 
about this mystery, what's so glorious about this mystery, is that it is Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, who has come to save his Gentile enemies. The fact that the king of Israel would not conquer his foes, but die for them. That he would give us the hope of glory. The hope and certain and confident expectation that we will share his glory. That on the last day we will be caught up in his glory and share in his splendor and majesty. Then we will be received into glory. And, and again, I think it's sometimes hard for us to kind of understand the, what was going on in 60 AD in Paul's day. But the fact that Christ was now the Jewish Messiah among the Gentiles, this was the biggest ethical and interpretive and ecclesial issue in Paul's day. You know, so ethically, what does it mean to follow Jesus? If you're a Jew, do you have to continue keeping the Jewish law? If you're a Gentile, do you have to start keeping the Jewish law? Interpretively, how does the gospel revealed in the new covenant relate to the gospel concealed in the old covenant? Uh, and then ecclesially, how do you get all these Jews and Gentiles to get along? And these two groups were enemies. They had entirely different customs and cultures. And now they're supposed to be one body, one church, serving one another, loving one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, that's a challenge for every local church. And these groups were enemies. In Paul's day, it wasn't at all clear what the implications were for the Gentiles to be included in the covenant people of God. And yet, Paul's appointment to apostolic ministry was for this very purpose. God appointed him to be a minister in the church so that he would be one of the main means by which the gospel was proclaimed among the Gentiles through Paul's preaching of the gospel, the mystery was slowly being unveiled in places like Philippi and Ephesus and Rome. That's why Paul states in verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Notice the repetition of the word everyone. Uh, it's emphatic in the Greek. Paul's point is this, that the good news of the gospel is a global for everyone kind of gospel, not just for Jews, but Gentiles also. And so brothers and sisters, so it is today. There is no white Jesus or black Jesus. There isn't an Indian Jesus or Asian-only churches or Brazilian-only churches. There aren't white-only Christians uh, churches filled with white-only Christians. The point is that as the church, as the body of Christ, now you get people from everywhere, all over, included in the one people of God because Christ is in us. He is what we share in common. All the nations of the earth now are invited to the hope of glory. Uh, you notice that that God appointed Paul to the apostolic office, um, and therefore Paul made it his goal to present everyone mature in Christ. You know, Paul's aim wasn't to tickle the ears of his hearers. 
he wasn't looking for higher attendance next month at his evangelistic rallies. He wasn't working for a bigger paycheck next year or a sweeter ministry position five years down the road. No, his sights were set on eternity. On that day when he will stand before the Lord and he will present. Do you notice that? He will present those he ministered to. You know, as Hebrews 13 states, church leaders will give an account for how they have led and shepherded Christ's flock. On that final day, accounts will be due. The reward or the rebuke from the master will be at hand. And so Paul's gaze is fixed on judgment day, on presenting everyone mature in Christ. Um, I think it's a, it's a basic and obvious point, but perhaps it's helpful to make it explicit. Paul isn't going to give an account for, for how many people got saved or didn't get saved in his ministry. Of course, he wanted for people to come to know the Lord. But that's not his concern here. Here, he's working to mature Christians on that final day. So Mark and Dave, we need to have this as our goal, our North Star. As we lead this church, let's, let's not get swept up in the numbers of getting self-sufficient or having a certain number of members or visitors or baptisms or whatever. Our goal isn't just get people in the door. That's not the, the end goal. The goal is judgment day. And we live and minister for that. We want saplings to grow into oaks of righteousness. We want Christ to be formed in all the flock. And so how does Paul get there? Well, it's through gospel proclamation, isn't it? That's what he says, him we proclaim. Such is the power of preaching. Uh, preaching is the divinely instituted means, brothers and sisters, for us to grow in Christ. Preaching, the proclamation of the word of God, is one of the main ways. I'm tempted to say the main way that God conforms us to the image of his son. And so notice that verse, 20 state, verse 28 uh, states, him we proclaim. Uh, all true preaching, all good Christian preaching has Christ at the center. Paul isn't fundamentally teaching doctrines. He isn't fundamentally teaching ethical commands. He's fundamentally proclaiming a person. Yes, he commanded Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy 4, preach the word. But of course, friends, what is the word of God about? Who is the word of God about? It's about Jesus. And so it's precisely this Christ that Paul is proclaiming. Friends, it is the eternal son of God who took on our flesh, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross as our substitute, bearing the wrath of God that we deserve, who rose from the grave victorious, that is what our shared life should be about. That's what the preaching of this church and this pulpit needs to be about. Uh, so 50 years from now or five years from now, if the preaching of this church is not centered on Christ, you should find a different church. Don't stay at a church that does not make Christ the center of its proclamation. He is what we need, not funny stories or a music anecdotes or penetrating cultural insight. We need Christ. Find a church and stay at the church that does that well. Verse 28 again says that faithful proclamation warns and teaches. Uh, to warn, uh, the, the word refers to admonishing and correcting about bad courses of action. 
But Paul doesn't just say, hey, do this, but he also says, hey, don't do this. Watch out for this error. And then teaching everyone with all wisdom does lead in a more doctrinal direction. Uh, The point is that preaching, proclamation involves teaching. And so, friends, we now come to our final verse in verse 29. Paul writes, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Uh, This last statement is both incredibly honest, realistic, and hopeful, and strengthening. I was thinking about it last night at midnight. I was thinking about it this morning. On the one hand, Paul recognizes and affirms that ministry is toil. Uh, It's struggle to live and suffer and serve and proclaim the gospel in such a way that people will be mature in Christ on the last day. Uh, You can never say that your work is finished, right? Like when you mow the yard, it looks great, and you're like, yes, I can have my iced lemonade. I can sit. But in the gospel ministry, the toil continues, and thus the, the greatness of the goal requires the greatness of the energy provided. Paul didn't have it. I don't have it, and neither do you. Uh, Brothers and sisters, we considered this a few weeks ago on the one-year anniversary. We require Christ's energy and presence if we would put sin to death, if we would love one another, if we would serve one another, if we would proclaim the gospel amidst persecution and opposition. And so, friends, let's conclude with three applications as we consider Paul's ministry to to the Gentiles and what we can take away from it. Three applications as we conclude. First, let's follow Jesus and Paul's pattern of laying down our flesh for the sake of the body. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we can endure suffering and violence and even death to advance the gospel. The worst they can do is kill us. And we know that what resulted with Jesus. He got up from the grave. So we don't need to be afraid. We can rejoice in our sufferings knowing that it makes the sufferings of Christ present. We kind of we are like an image or an imitation of Christ's suffering as we make present the sufferings of Christ. We can rejoice in this if we have different priorities than the world around us. And so the question for you and for me And for me, I really do mean that. Is do we love comfort or ease or pain-free life? Or do we love people? Do we love Christ? Do we love Christ enough to suffer his afflictions, to bring the gospel to those who don't have it? To Bedford and greater Boston and to the ends of the earth. Second, let's do that. Let's take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Uh, This will require real sacrifice. Sacrifice in the giving, sacrifice in the going. Uh, Children, have you ever thought that God might be calling you to be a missionary to the four corners of the globe? Uh, Workers, have you thought about how you might use your job as missions, business as missions? How you might work from Shanghai or Sao Paulo or Dubai? How you might use your job to get overseas to make disciples there? And so then third and finally, let's lovingly warn and teach and struggle for each other. You see, these tasks aren't reserved for Paul alone. In Colossians 3, we read, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. It's the exact same phrase that Paul used of his own ministry. 
And Paul says, okay, now it's like, you guys do it. Like, Jesse, you do it. Like, Mark, you do it. Like, Dan, you do it. Like, like admonish and teach and correct one another. And then Paul explicitly states how, how we do that. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Holly, I am so grateful for how you sing out, sister. It is such a joy as you teach and admonish us as you sing that it is well with your soul. Thank you for doing that. What a blessing it is to this congregation. Uh, Brothers and sisters, let's continue to sing for one another. Let's continue to teach and admonish for others' maturity in Christ. And then, last thing, Colossians 4, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature. Trinity Church of Bedford, does that describe your prayers? Do you struggle on behalf of others, praying for their maturity in Christ? May God give us grace to serve him amidst the trials and sufferings of life, but in great confidence because of the power he powerfully works within us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we say with the Apostle Paul, who is sufficient for these things? And we confess our absolute need of your grace. We confess how often our own hearts desire the comfort and ease of this life, how we desire to avoid suffering. Father, we pray that you would make us rejoice when our sufferings make present the sufferings of Christ, when they imitate him and make his glory known. We pray that if there are any here who have not trusted in Christ and turned from their sins, that you'd work that in their own hearts and minds. We pray that you'd cause us to minister like the Apostle Paul, giving of our flesh for the sake of Christ's body, the church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.